Our children are dismissed for Children's Church. <coughs> if they're wearing a choir robe, they're not a child. <coughs> Suppose you grew up in a small town with devout parents who taught you the scriptures and told you the sacred stories and took you to the place of worship every time the doors were opened. And there the scriptures were handled like they were sacred jewels and whose teachings were absolute. And your small town was full of good neighbors, people you trusted and people who believed the same things you did. But then somewhere along the way, you began to see it differently for whatever reason. Curiosity, youthful rebellion, some experience or observation of suffering that didn't match up with what you were taught. And you have some aha moments when the sacred stories come alive for you. And the characters in the story dance in your mind to a tune that you seem to be the only one that hears. Music that throbs with excitement and vitality and challenge. And you begin asking questions of the adults that you know and love. And they tolerate your questions, but they do not engage the questions themselves. They just repeat the same understandings that you're questioning. And you start noticing the difference between what is taught and what is behaved. And you resolve quietly to follow your own take on the sacred words and the sacred stories. And your questions turn inward. And you want to know who you are. And what you're going to do with this one wild precious life, as Mary Oliver called it. And you dare to dream of a life beyond the village. But you see human suffering everywhere. And slowly the idea takes shape in your mind of who you really are and what you need to do with your life. It comes into focus. Now, on a Sabbath day in your hometown, a small village, you wait to read the scriptures. There's a great line in the movie Dumplin' where the drag queen says to the troubled teenager, figure out who you are and do it on purpose. Well, Jesus has figured out who he is and he's setting out to do it on purpose. He comes to this moment in time after a long time in the wilderness, hunger, want, temptation, where he has tried out his own answers, his own understandings. And in the 35 verses of Luke to take this in, it talks about the Holy Spirit filling Jesus, empowering Jesus, descending on Jesus. Clearly, this is the work of the Spirit, as Luke describes it. Years ago, I spent a week with my mother at a hospice unit in Cincinnati. And after her death and after I returned to work, I had lunch with a good friend, Ellen, whom I trust and admire. 
And she asked me, what did I learn during that time? And I said to her, I don't know that I learned anything new. But I think the things I know I learned in a deeper place. As I thought about this moment in scripture in the life of Jesus and my own experience, I've come to believe that the work of the Spirit is this deepened learning. It's a difficult article of faith, really, to believe that the Spirit is working with us in troubled times, in difficult times, in great stress and great grief. So there's something about this day in the synagogue, an energy, attention, an expectation. Can you place yourself there? Can you hear the scrolls, a dry, scratchy sound as they're unrolled and handled? Do you see the suspicious eyes of old men who remember the impertinent questions of this young upstart? You get the sense that Jesus' heart is racing with the risk he's about to take. Do you have a, a saying in your mind, something that sums up your faith, your philosophy of life, the, the, what you do and why you do it? Like the Dalai Lama who said, my religion is kindness, or Martin Luther who said, love God and do as you please. Or St. John, who said, God is love. What's your summary statement? Jesus reads from the Isaiah scroll and claims it. These few words is his identity and his purpose. And the eyes of all are fixed on him like a teenager on a cell phone. It's not that funny, really particularly to the teenagers. One of the things he says, he'll bring good news to the poor, but he doesn't make anybody wealthy. Any record of him giving to anybody is pretty sketchy. Now, his audience probably didn't have much. They live in a small town. They don't have much. There's no middle class to speak of. And getting more sounded pretty good to them. They could applaud that. And then he alludes to a story, a story familiar to them, of a Hebrew child, a girl, taken as the spoils of war and made to serve a powerful man's wife. She probably doesn't even know the fate of her own family. She's a powerless child and a female In that world, who has no value. But the powerful Naaman also has leprosy. He's a hated foreigner. This female child has no value, and yet she tells her mistress that Naaman could go to Israel, and there's a prophet there who could help him. Well, he goes... And the prophet insults him by not even granting him an audience, just sending a message, go wash in the muddy Jordan River. And he's angry and humiliated, but eventually he's convinced to do that, and he's healed. And Jesus' audience hates the fact that he reminds them that a foreigner was healed. 
But buried in this story is this little girl, the spoils of war. A child separated from her family. You couldn't blame her if she kept this information to herself. If she just thought, you go ahead and let your face rot off. But she doesn't. From her lowly position, she shows compassion and has the courage to speak. Jesus reminds us that a foreigner was healed, and they don't like it, and he invites them to see this poor child as a powerful, heroic person. Proclaiming the good news to the poor is an invitation to see the poor as worthy Well, Jesus doesn't make anybody wealthy. He sees everyone as worthy. As folks who have much to teach us. When I first started my hospice chaplaincy, I would find myself working with lots of poor people. And I realized without thinking of it that I was assuming that because of my experience and my education, that I was bringing a lot to the table for them during this time of crisis. And I would soon learn they really didn't need my arrogance that they had a banquet table full of story and experience of trouble and conflict and reconciliation, stories of love, stories of lost and found, rich lives. And they needed me to see them as worthy. They needed me to see the image of God in them. Doesn't excuse us from seeking economic justice. But it is an acknowledgement that sometimes in helping the poor, we continue to belittle them because we don't really see them. And Jesus said he would proclaim release to the captives, but nobody got out of jail. And the people who were captive to Rome were still captive before and after Jesus' work. And yet in the course of his work, Jesus encounters all kinds of people who are imprisoned by injustice or by prejudice or they're stuck in some role they would never choose for themselves. People captured in a culture that kept them less. As I think about his words, I ask myself, what imprisons me? What in my culture do I allow to imprison me? What claims my energy but is not worthy of my energy? Is it some anger that I carry from some long-ago injustice? The people in Jesus' day always kind of paid, dipped their heads to the Roman overlords, but inwardly they seethed, oppressing themselves. Is it some fear that I carry of strangers or a person of color? And fear makes us oppressors ourselves. I recall Martin Luther King's example of how if we have to step on somebody else's neck that we have automatically limited where we can go. We have nailed our own foot to the ground. Jesus came to take the feet off a neck. He liberates those who are captive and he liberates the oppressor at the same time. 
Jesus said he's going to be about the recovery of sight to the blind, but only a few people got healed, and there must have been scores, hundreds, even thousands of blind people. They didn't know about childhood diseases. They didn't have antibiotics. They didn't have any surgeries. They just had a lot of blind people. And only a few of them get healed. I can't imagine Jesus taking this part of his job description to his supervisor and say, well, I got a couple of them. But moving beyond the literal, I ask myself, how am I blind? What do I refuse to see? There's an old saying that there's none so blind as those who will not see. Jesus alluded to another story after our reading today, a story about a terrible, terrible drought and how their prototype prophet Elijah is directed to go to this widow for survival. Except she's a widow in the wrong tribe, the wrong ethnic group, the wrong nation. And all she has left is just a little oil for cooking, a little flour to make a meal. Just going to make a couple of biscuits and then she and her daughter are planning to die of starvation. But she feeds Elijah first. And then the miracle is that the oil doesn't run out and the flour doesn't run out. They have enough to sustain them. And the story would have been taught as a miracle story. God provided. And it would have been listed as a commendation for Elijah. But I think that Jesus sees it with a focus on this poor widow. They thought of themselves as the chosen people, and they didn't like to think God choosing somebody outside their tribe. And they get mad. Recently, a relative sat at our table and announced her conclusion about some social issue. It doesn't matter which one. And so I asked her, I understand that's your conclusion. How did you get there? What was the thought process that you reached this conclusion? And she restated the conclusion. And I said, no, I understand that's your conclusion. But where did you start? What was the the evidence? What were the facts that you considered? What were the opinions of others that you considered? What are your own experiences that all this went together and you came to this conclusion? And she repeated her conclusion. Shortly thereafter, she left for an errand, and I beat my head on the wall. (laughs) Clearly, she refuses to see, but what shall I do? Cut off a relationship with her? Unfriend her on Facebook? But doesn't that make me blind to her? Doesn't that just increase blindness? How am I blind? Who do I make invisible by the way I do not see them? Jesus says he's about letting the oppressed go free, but there's no record of any refugee crossing some border to freedom. They lived in an oppressive world. Strict laws about women and the rules and what they could and could not do, and there wasn't a whole lot they could do. Rules about who was acceptable and who was not acceptable to God. You're born with your hands tied up in a certain class. 
Their own fears oppress them. The anger of the resentment at being captive oppressed them. Remember several years ago now, working with a young woman over a period of time, angry, full of bitterness and resentment toward her mother-in-law. Honestly, her mother-in-law deserved it. Her mother-in-law had abandoned them during a very critical time. And every time I would bring up some hint about forgiveness, she would just go off. And after four years, she said to me one day, I have to forgive her or it's going to kill me. The challenge to me is how do I oppress others with my assumption of privilege and my fear of resisting the status quo that keeps people down? Courier-Journal reported this week a study of arrest for marijuana possession in our city. I know nobody here has ever touched marijuana or had it in their possession at all. And the few of you who are giggling make me nervous. <laughs> but interestingly, though the rate of usage is the same for each race, the rate of arrest is six times greater for African Americans. I'm persuaded that we can make a whole list of statistics like this. The question is, for me is, how do I oppress others with my silence? And what part of me gets lost? What part of me gets oppressed? The courage part. The boundaries were there. Jesus crossed them time and again. Boundaries of race, boundaries of religious legalism, boundaries of harsh judgment. And his example just invites all of us to cross the boundaries and embrace each other. And then he said he would proclaim the year of the Lord. And he rolls up the scroll and sits down and says, This has been fulfilled even while you're listening. It's a reference to the year of Jubilee in Leviticus 25, a time when the Israelites were to do three things. Every 50 years, the land went back to the original landowner. And if if you bought the land, you were simply buying a certain number of harvest. And all debts were forgiven. If you owed somebody money, that was forgiven. If they owed you money, that was forgiven. And if you were an indentured servant, the third thing was you were set free. If you had indentured yourself in order to pay a debt, you were set free. It's a pretty radical vision. But by this time, they seem to have forgotten how to calculate 50 years. Not so much a practice as it was just a warm memory. But Jesus is saying, no more putting it off. Now is the time. Now is the time to practice radical grace, to practice forgiveness. Now is the time to pursue economic justice. Now is our time, our time. That is, if we figure out who we are and do it on purpose. Amen.